Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, a podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church, where we believe that personal spiritual growth is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up? How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? How's everybody doing? Week two of Inspired by Rachel Held Evans. Week two, and chapter two is called Deliverance Stories. And if you don't know, one of the like major stories of the Bible is Passover, the way that God rescued the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. Um, and that story is embodied in the tradition of Passover. Mm -hmm. That is a deliverance story of which there's a very iconic phrase that Moses utters to Pharaoh. Do you remember? It's in the song. Let my people people go. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Generations of Christian African-Americans have found solidarity and empowerment in the death and resurrection of Jesus with liberation theologian James Cohen making a striking connection between the crucifixion of Jesus and the scourge of lynching against black men. All of liberation theology stems from that truth. Hmm. Let my people go. Because these were a people in need of deliverance. Right. As they begin exploring the Bible for their own deliverance story, it makes sense that an African-American man that grew up through the civil rights movement, studying African-American history, would have his mind on lynchings and associate that with what happened to Jesus on the cross. Yeah. Is he wrong? Is James Cone wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Yeah. I, I mean, he so. wasn't he yeah. wasn't strung up on a tree, mm-hmm. but he was hung on one. Yeah. I mean, don't, I mean, the resemblance is striking in the metaphors. Yeah, it's very similar. Even whereas in Galatians, Paul can say, and he was hung on a tree. Yeah. That sounds like a very similar statement to what someone who's been lynched, the experience they would have. Yeah. The hanging is a little different. Right. But it's still a lynching truth. Yeah, I think so. And it's because of that that she can say, The rich history of reading new meaning into the Bible's deliverance stories reminds us, too, that in an effort to understand the unique context from which Scripture emerged and the original audience for whom it was intended, we dare not forgo the long and crucial tradition of sacred appropriation of allowing these ancient stories to speak fresh life into new, fitting contexts. Mm. After all, Scripture is described as the living Word of God, which means it remains animated and active, yeah. pulsing with possibility. 
Huh. Interesting. So, actually, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I I have. So okay, can you take scripture out of context? Yes, absolutely. Sure. Yes, absolutely. She's gonna get there in just a minute. Right. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I, I I think I see where this is headed. Mm-hmm. But can scripture have interpretations that are different as time goes on? Yes. Exactly. Yes. But somewhere in in the history of Christi- ah, stop. This is what she did. This is literally the next paragraph. Okay, then I'm going to stop. In other words, Bible stories don't have to mean just one thing. Yeah. Despite what you may have heard from a pastor or Sunday school teacher along the way, faithful engagement with scripture isn't about uncovering a singular moralistic mm. point mm-hmm. to every text and then sticking to it. Rather, the very nature of the biblical text invites us to consider the possibilities. It's a, le- it's a living and breathing document. Yes. Um, the, the Bible, as we talked about last week, is a guidebook to lead you to godness. Correct. And is God living and breathing? Yes. Is, are you as a person living and breathing and changing? Yes. Then how come the guidebook doesn't change? You know, like it's a great question. Like, can we like think about this for a second? Okay, I'm done. Now, part of it is because we do want right interpretation. Sure, and and you have to have that. Yep. But I, I remember there was an older man in the church that we went to growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I had a really great relationship. Um, you lived in his cottage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember this was the first person that ever told me this and it stuck with me and I've heard it multiple times since, but it stuck with me as this man's words. I've read the Bible through and through multiple times. Um, but each time I read something through again, it always has a different meaning because I'm a different person than the last time I read it. Yep. Um, that is not original to him, but that thing that, that has stuck with me and has proved true for myself as well. Yeah. Because we change as people, our experiences change. Therefore our interpretations of what scripture is change. Yes. Um, and in, as long as it falls within orthodoxy, if it's making that impact on you, then it's making that impact on you for a reason. The way Rachel explains it is, of course, the fact that a single biblical text can mean many things doesn't mean it can mean anything. Yeah, yeah. Anytime the Bible is used to justify the oppression and exploitation of others, we have strayed far from the God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's a really important factor for me because... God is a God of liberation. Yeah. Jesus himself says, I've come to set the captives free. Like God is a God of liberation and deliverance. So anytime the story is not about that, Mm. we've run into a problem. 
Mm, like interesting. There's just no way around that in my mind. This is a statement by Broderick Greer, who happens to be black and gay and a reverend. This is what he says. I do theology as a matter of survival because if people can do theology that produces brutality against black, transgender, queer, and other minority bodies, then we can do theology that leads to our common liberation. And she goes on to say, if you want the Bible, if you want the Bible to be oppressive, you're going to find yeah. ways to make it oppressive. Yeah, it's not hard. If you want the Bible to be liberating, you're going to find ways to make it liberating. Again, not hard. It's not hard. What, what becomes more difficult is justifying the other places. That, that's the hard part. Yes. Your opposing side justifying those. Yes. Yes, 1,000%. And I think, so for me, you know, I, I've, I've often wondered this. I'm a cisgendered white male from a middle-class background in the South. Who's also a Christian. I, I could not have more privilege in this country if I dreamed it up. Same. Um, Did you also mention able-bodied? Oh, yes. And able-bodied. Yeah. Um, I will not ever know oppression in the way that women, minorities, um, LGBTQIA+, Disabled people, I, I will never Especially know. People. Yeah, I will never know oppression in the way that they do. Yeah, honestly, I would venture to say I may never know oppression in my life. Um, you you can't. Um, not unless Christians begin to actually be oppressed, and right. being asked to wear a mask is not oppression. Just stop. It's um, look, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw something. Well, I'll talk to you about that. Yeah, we can um, talk about that. Yeah, later. Apparently, the new Karen is called Sheila. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Clayton's laughing because unfortunately, that's our grandmother's name. <laughs> yeah, Colin, cut all that off. We'll no, no, no. Apparently, the new the new Karen is named Sheila. I saw it on Instagram multiple times in the last week. I have not seen that. They've changed her. She's no longer Karen. Her name is Sheila. Anyways, because I will never know oppression, I have often wondered what to do with these deliverance stories. And Rachel does a great job explaining this. She says, for centuries, the Bible's stories of deliverance have offered comfort to the suffering and a challenge to the privileged. Yeah. Now, I 100% agree with that statement. Yes. My question to you, how many people of privilege do you actually know feel challenged by the truth of deliverance stories? That I know personally? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 
My guess, not many. Yeah, very few. And it's because we have made the story, the deliverance element, something that it's not. We've over-spiritualized it. The deliverance is only from spiritual bondage. Yeah. And she says that. Let me find it in the book. But go ahead. That is so true. Like, we we talk about all the time. So, like, if you try to read the the Exodus narrative um, and try to use it for a, a sermon... It's always like God will liberate you from your sin Mm -hmm. as he did the Israelites from, or not just your sin, but whatever thing that, whatever spiritual darkness that you have, God will liberate you from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. That's that. Yes, that, that's true. But also this is a whole people group that he liberated that was being oppressed. This, we cannot miss this in huge fact. And it's not just because they were God's chosen people. Yes, that, but also major injustice. I'm going to read you something, and you tell me if you disagree with this this clause. The good news is that God's grand story of deliverance, the deliverance of all people from the bondage of sin— by which I mean our individual and collective bondage to violence, power, fear, hate, greed, and so on. May I read that? Where's it at? You can't can't have the book, though. you got to lean over. Yes, but I would word it differently. Now, that's not what I asked you. The way that sentence is listed. No. You do not agree with that statement. The good news of the story is Jesus. No, no, no. Which is a byproduct. No, the good news is, is that God's grand story of deliverance, which is ultimately in found Jesus. in Jesus. Yeah. She's not, she's not negating that. Then that that would be the only thing that I would say is I would word it differently, but yes, I agree. Well, she's telling it in a larger story of which I'm pulling a piece out, and that's why I can't let you read the rest of it. Okay, fair enough. Because it, yeah. Anyways, so yes, for her, the bondage of sin, as which you've stated, she actually has categorized as our individual and collective bondage to violence, power, fear, hate, greed, and so on. And I think that's a great way to actually define sin and the bondage of sin. That it is... Remember how we talk about... Um, what, what's your um, definition of the word porneia? Sex things that are bad? Sex things that are bad. Yeah. yeah. Sin, hamartia, things that are bad. Maybe talk about as like missing the mark, right? Like, well, that's literally what yeah, it like means. Unfortunately, just, yeah. just like right, left, up, down from bullseye. Yeah, right. Like that's that's what that is. Yeah. Now she she embarks on a conversation about the law because unfortunately, 
the law doesn't feel restorative at all. Right. Um, but what she says is the law is an extension of God's liberation of the Hebrew slaves, the continuation of their deliverance story. This is not a God who liberates then leaves. This is a God who walks with people through the desert in a cloud of smoke and fire and who literally sets up camp with them in the form of a traveling tabernacle. He's an imminent God. This is a God who cares about every detail of their new life together. Yeah, he is an imminent God. Very imminent. A, a God that is literally in the desert with them. Correct. Um, which, ooh, help me walk this out. Okay. Is that the first time that God is actually present with the people in the narrative since Adam and Eve? Mm. Or since Enoch, probably? Since he walked with Enoch? Since it says Enoch walked with God. Yeah. Um, I can't think of another opportunity. Like where, other where, place. where are we? You're talking, where are you talking about? Um, with, with, uh, God in the desert. I'm sorry. Like intimately, like as a cloud in the desert. Mm, oh, so if he appears, if, if you're counting that way, Moses in the burning bush, would predate that. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jacob wrestling with God would predate that. Okay. Never mind. Um, I'm wrong. Yeah. There, I'm wrong. There are there are several places you could point to if you, I was, if you I get was, more metaphorical. Now, if yeah. you really want God walking, right. you can't go except Adam and Eve, Enoch, and Moses. Yeah. Because Moses gets to see God walk by. Yeah. I, I was just... I was more thinking about it in like terms of like Ruach. Being present? Like, yeah, I guess. Like, well, God's, Ruach would be spirit. It would be God's spirit, but like that's what Adam and Eve felt in the garden when he came in. Um, if you ask Tim over at Bible Project, that's what he says would be God's Ruach. Um, and then again, oh, that might be the over and over again. Yeah, that might be the first time I really like vehemently disagree with Tim. Mm. Um, I'll you think have, God actually walked in the garden and? Oh, I'm not saying that, but I don't think it's his ruach, because mm. ruach's already present. Right. Mm. Ruach doesn't come and go. Ruach exists in the world. Interesting. Um. So yeah, I wouldn't say that, but I need. I would need to listen to what Tim is saying exactly. I'll send you the episode. Um. So. The law ends up being a the law ends up for everything that we don't understand about it. Mm -hmm. Rachel's point is that it also ends up being a piece of the deliverance story. So for instance, the whole eye for an eye mentality. Okay? That's that doesn't sound delivering at all. Right, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, like whatever's done to me, I can do to you. That doesn't sound delivering at all. Yeah. Actually, what Rachel says is it is because in a revenge culture where if you take my eye, I'm taking both, or if you take my eye, I'm taking an eye and a tooth, where I'm going to do more to you than what you've done to me, 
Rachel says, in other words, you can demand restitution for your loss, but no more. This is about justice, not revenge. And justice is a piece of deliverance. As weirdly distorted as it is, this is actually an improvement from the cultural society at large. She says, while it's short-sighted to discount Scripture's laws as totally backward and immoral, it's just as misguided to pretend they reflect a more just society than they do. No one who values the inherent worth and dignity of their fellow human being should want a return to ancient Israel. Those were not the good old days, not by a long shot. Even the Bible's stories of deliverance cast some troubling shadows. Death may have passed over the homes of the enslaved Hebrews, but it ravaged Egyptian families, taking all their firstborn sons without mercy. Many womanist scholars note that Hagar's liberation is incomplete. For she was told by God to return to her cruel masters. And as we shall see in the next chapter, the very people who, based on their identity on God's liberating work in their lives, would turn to xenophobia, violence, and enslavement to conquer new territory and claim it as their own. The good news is that God's grand story of deliverance, the deliverance of all people from the bondage of sin, this is what I read to you earlier, by which I mean our individual and collective bondage to violence, power, fear, hate, greed, and so on, continues, and Christians believe it reached a new climax at the top of another mountain, where a descendant of the same Hebrew slaves declared, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Mm. Jesus made it clear that he did not come to abolish the law, laws of the Torah, but to fulfill them. Yep. And how did Jesus say you are to fulfill the law, Clayton? Um, to love God, love people. Mm. Let me read it to you in the beautiful prose of Rachel Held Evans. Okay. This is the point of every liberation every wandering through the desert, every law about oxen and yeast and blood. To love is to honor God and keep God's commandments. Love is the law that liberates slave and slaveholder alike. Love is the ultimate deliverance story. For only love can sustain the sojourner out of Egypt, through the desert, up the mountain, and into the promised land. The truth is, you can bend scripture to say just about anything you want it to say. You can bend it until it breaks. For those who count the Bible as sacred, interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick and choose, but how to pick and choose. We're all selective. We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we reading with the prejudice of love, with Christ as our model, Or are we reading with the prejudices of judgment and power, self-interest and greed? Are we seeking to enslave or liberate, burden or set free?